as Dan was um, pleading for nursery workers and kids were talking and screaming, um, I thought of some of the military uh, images in my mind of uh, wars of attrition where they said, the enemy is coming, they're coming in waves, we need more bodies to throw at them. And that's where we're at right now with nursery workers. We just need bodies to throw at them. And anybody who can, you know, give a hand, that would be greatly helped. We're going to be studying Ephesians 3 today. And um, so if you'll turn there, that would be great. Uh, we are going to be looking at some other passages of scripture and then some will be put on the screen as well. Um, so that's where we're going to be located if you want to get ready for that. Let's um, pray together. Fathers, we sang about these ancient words. My heart was just so thankful for you in giving us this Bible. We thank you, Father, for its truth. We thank you that it is inerrant. We thank you that it is infallible. We thank you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you moved these men to write these things down. We thank you that this Bible has been preserved for all of these generations. We thank you that the saints of old, both those who read the Old Testament and those who read the New Testament for thousands of years have been encouraged and built up because of this book that we now have the privilege of having and you have granted us the ability to read. Father, please be with us now. Speak to us from your word. Your word says marvelous, wonderful things. And, oh, Father, we just need help. We need help to grasp them. We need help to just begin to comprehend. We need help to, to practically work these things in our lives and to grow. We need the power and the ongoing ministry of your Holy Spirit, even this morning, even now, to help us to grasp this great thing that you are doing and what you have done and how we are involved. So bless us now, we pray, please. Please bless us, please come, please speak to us by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Has somebody ever been talking to you and you've been kind of talking about normal things and then all of a sudden, maybe near the end of the conversation, they just kind of drop a bombshell. They just like say, oh, by the way, did I boom? And it's like, what? What did you say? Almost as if they're walking away. Like if somebody were to say, oh, by the way, and you have this, this just normal conversation with them about just normal uh, mundane things. And they say, oh, by the way, as they were walking away, hey, I got that job. Oh, wait, wait, what? What did you say? Or, oh, by the way, I'm engaged. Or, by the way, we had the baby. It's like, what? Wait, wait, what What'd you say? Wait, come back. Well, the book of Ephesians is almost like that in every chapter and every verse almost at times. It's like Paul is writing along and then all of a sudden, boom, he drops his bombshell. And that's what we're going to look at today is one of these bombshell verses. Uh, as we, let me just give us some context first. We've been looking at the fact that Paul has been opening up for us what he calls this mystery this mystery that God has planned before the foundation of the world, and it's, it's, it's a blueprint, as it were. It's a plan that God has planned before the foundation of the world, but he kept hidden, and he kept hidden, and Paul says, for, for all the ages, he kept hidden until he's revealed it now to the apostles. Look at verse 5, which in other ages, I'm sorry, um, he talks about the mystery of Christ in verse 4, and then he says this, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, 
as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. This mystery, and here Paul has been focusing on, this mystery has, it is that the Gentiles have been included. The world has been included into this wonderful thing that God is doing. And what we have been looking at as we've been studying Ephesians is, is, that, is that Ephesians sort of gives us this, it's unfolding this role of this blueprint and if you've ever seen blueprints that, that, that are big and they unfold and there's leaf after leaf after leaf that unfolds and then you fold them back over. This is the first floor, this is the second floor, this is the third floor and this is all these things. God is unfolding that blueprint and we're getting a chance to look into it. And that's the beauty of the book of Ephesians. We get to look into it and, and, and we get a chance to see these things. That's why Ephesians is just such a, a powerful, powerful little book. But then Paul, sometimes in the midst of this, just pow, this, this, this verse just goes, what? What is that? And that's what we're going to look at today. And that's verse 10. Look at verse 10. Paul says, to the intent that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. It's like pow. See, Paul, he starts talking again about the mystery he talks about how by the grace of God, verse 8, he is this least of all saints has been given this ministry to preach. And he talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. We looked at that. And then in verse 9, to make all to see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus. And then he says this, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heaven. Now look at that verse. Look at that verse. Let's just take it apart phrase by phrase briefly here. Let's just do some exegesis. That's what exegesis is. You, you look at each word, each phrase, take it apart so that you grasp it. Notice what Paul says first. To the intent. That's a purpose clause. For the purpose of. In order that. To the intent. This is God's intent. This is the intent of the entire blueprint. That now. Notice that's a temporal clause. That means something to do with time. Now, that now, and he's talking about with, the, with it, it being opened up to the apostles in the new covenant ages that we're opening. The manifold wisdom of God. The manifold, the word means many-sided, many-faceted, complex. Uh, there's, there's, there's depths to it. The wisdom of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about the wisdom of God. I, my, my meditation life, my thought life has been going increasingly more and more to the wisdom of God. How, how, and here Paul is talking about this manifold wisdom of God. We're going to look at this in just a few minutes, this manifold wisdom of God. He says, so that's the subject, okay? To the intent, that's a purpose clause, that now, that's a temporal clause, that the manifold wisdom of God, that's the subject, might be made known, that's the verb, might be made known. And the word uh, means that word, that's a unique word for known. It might be experienced. You might, you might you know, really get a grasp of it. And so the manifold wisdom of God is being made known. It's actually a passive verb. Uh, it's being made known. How is it being made known? Notice, by the church. That, that, that is, a, that is a, the, the instrumentality. That's an, an instrument. The, the church is that by which the manifold wisdom of God is being made known. And then you have the, uh, the, the people for whom it's being made known. To the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. 
Now, now what, is, what is that? Well, who are the principalities and powers, and what does it mean in the heavenly places? Well, when you come to, you're doing your exegesis, and you've, we've just outlined this verse. We have a purpose clause, we have a temporal clause, we have a, a subject, we have a main verb, and then we have an, an, the instrumentation, the instrumentality, that's a prepositional phrase, by the church, and then we have two, that's the indirect object, two, the principalities and powers. Now, when you look at this principalities and powers, you're doing your exegesis, for those of you who took the exegesis class, you know this. Um, you're supposed to look at it in context, and then you're supposed to uh, take the next context out like, a, like an archer's air, uh, air, uh, target. And so concentric circles further out. The next concentric circle that you should look at then is how the author uses the words in the book that you are actually reading. So in Ephesians, how does Paul use this idea of principalities and powers? Well, the word principality, for instance, is the word Greek word arche. And I'm just saying that to you because we're going to run into that word in a uniquely another verse here uh, soon. But the word arche, and arche means first, foremost, but it actually means a ruler, a ruler. It's used twice, two other times in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1 and verse 21, where it says Jesus has been placed far above all principality, all archaic, all rulers, and it's used again, and we're going to be flipping Ephesians right now quite dramatically, so just, get, just hang with me here. It's used again in chapter 6 and verse 12, which, by the way, all of the words we're going to look at is all included in this one verse, so we're going to keep coming back to it. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the archaic, the principalities. Now here, the principalities are evil principalities, okay? We're wrestling against them. But in chapter 1 in verse 21 that we looked at, they weren't evil principalities. They were all principalities, both angelic good and evil. So that's, we're trying to hone in on what Paul means by these people that are seeing the wisdom of God worked out. The next word that is used there is powers, and that's the word exousia in Greek. It means an authority, a jurisdiction, somebody who has the, the, that sort of power, uh, it's sort of almost a legal power. And that word is used in chapter 2 and verse 2, and here it's used in a negative way. So we've been looking at the principalities and powers. Look with me again in chapter 3. We've been looking at these principalities and powers, and notice what this verse is saying. This verse is saying that God is doing something in the world and the audience is not us. You notice that? The audience is not us. The primary focus of what God is doing in the world in this verse is not us. Now in verse 5 it is, look at this, in other ages that was made known, the sons of men as it has now been revealed in the spirit, that is people, but in verse 10, the audience is the principalities and powers. The audience is, is the angelic beings in heavenly places. All of those who are looking and seeing what God is doing. And guess what? There is proof in the Bible that these principalities and powers, as they've been looking at what God has been doing, they've been scratching their heads. They've been confused. They've been asking questions. They've been looking over our shoulders, and they've actually been looking at what God has revealed. You say, seriously, Todd? I think your fantasy is taking you over. No, 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 no. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And notice what this says. 1 Peter chapter 1.
Look what it says in verse 10. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. So this is about the salvation that, that we have, has come to us in Christ Jesus. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Look at that verse. The Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, you know, Malachi, uh, Amos, they were prophesying about a grace that was going to come to us. Now, see, there's that mystery, the mystery that was kept hidden until the apostles. Then verse 11, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. They're trying to figure this out. When is this going to happen? What does this mean? What is this idea of the sufferings of Christ? Verse 12, to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Here he's talking about the apostolic preaching. Then notice the last line. Things which angels desire to look into. And so here's this principalities and powers scratching their head, trying to figure out what is God doing? How is God doing this? How is this working out? And the Bible talks about that this whole working out of God's plan is an absolutely deeply wise, incredible thing that God is doing. Look with me in Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, Paul talks about one part of this plan, and he has to do with the Jews and the Gentiles, and he has to do with the fact that, that the Jewish, God, God has this nation, then they rebel, God breaks off the, the natural branches, then he grafts in these, these Gentile branches and, and such, and he says at the end of this very in-depth discussion of, of, of the sort of mysterious way that God has been working, verse 32, for God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Then he goes into a burst of praise and adoration for the wisdom of God. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him that it should be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Notice verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable. And that's the only second time that word unsearchable is used. Now here and what we looked at last week, the unsearchable riches of Christ. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. This God is wise. This God is working things out. He's working things out in ways we didn't anticipate, things we didn't know. And that's what is, if you go back to Ephesians 3.10, that is what's so amazing about this verse. He's saying that God is manifesting his wisdom. God is showing forth his wisdom, and God is showing it to the principalities and powers. In other words, God's answering their questions. Why? How? What's going on? What does this all mean? Why is God doing these things the way that he's doing? Now, let's step back, and let's, let's, let's look at how this confusion came upon these principalities and powers. How in the world could angels be confused? How in the world can demons be confused? How can they not see... Well, you notice, again, Paul is making the point 
that in ages, times past, these things were hidden, but now they've been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets. The, the, as, as, as God is sending his spirit and helping and unfolding the, 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 uh, the blueprint, he's showing the people, he's showing through the church what his plan is and what he's doing. So let's step back and let's think about how this, is, how this works out. Let's go back to the beginning of time. We, let's go back to the beginning before creation that we know of this world. Before creation of this world began with the creation of these principalities and powers. These spiritual beings. These angels. These angels then fall into sin. And, and, and some of them fall into sin and they become the demons, as it were. Satan himself. And then God creates a world. He creates a universe. He creates all of these things. And, and these manifest his glory. These, these angelic beings manifest God's glory. This, this universe with all of its stars and all of its planets and this world that he creates with its oceans and its, and its mountains and, and all of its animals, the big animals and the small animals, all reflect God's wisdom and God's power and God's creativity, and God's glory, and God's beauty. All of that is displayed. So you know a lot about God by just looking at this creation, by looking at what God has done. This is a powerful God. This is an amazing God. This is a wise God. This God is stupendous. This God is, is glorious. This God is great. But there's something you don't know about God. There's something that lies hidden in God. There's something that lies... It, it, you can almost say like it lies dormant in God, and that is God's grace. You don't, you don't, you don't know anything about God's grace. Think of God's grace at this point in in time. The whole world's been created. Everything's been, think of God's grace as a huge reservoir of oil under the ground. Okay. Like sometimes they recently find these reservoirs of oil, and these reservoirs of oil are like these reservoirs of oil. We're sitting on billions of dollars worth of oil. We didn't even know that. We were up here scratching away, trying to, trying to plant some crops, and all of a sudden we're filthy rich because we got all this reservoir. The reservoir of God's grace is, is un, un, undisturbed as it, as it is and, and unknown to anybody. The angels don't know of God's grace. The creation knows nothing of God's grace. They know he's powerful. He's made these universes. He's great. He's, but they don't know anything of his grace. They know that he's good. They know he's holy. He made all things good. He said, behold, this is good. He made all of these things good. God is good. But they don't know anything about his grace. And then even as they see God working in providence in his creation, feeding the birds and clothing the flowers and sending rain and taking care of his creation, they were, this God is good. He's kind. He's loving. He's good to his creation. He's a good gardener, as it were. He's a good, good, good taking care of the earth. He's good. He's a good God. But they don't know anything about his grace. His grace is still sort of hidden and sort of dormant. And then, of course, the angels, the angels, we said, they rebel against God. There are some angels that rebel against God. And what does God do to those angels that rebel? He immediately judges them. He immediately casts them out of heaven. He immediately casts them from his presence, and he sends them to hell. And we're told that in two passages of Scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, it says this, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, 
but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Notice God did not spare those who'd sinned. He did not extend grace toward them. He extended justice toward them. He did what was right. He acted as a judge, a righteous judge against those rebels. In Jude 6, it says this, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, by the way, that word there is archaic. They did not keep their proper rulership or authority, the domain that God had given them, but left their own abode, left their own place that God had placed them in. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. When the angels rebelled, when those who rebelled rebelled, God immediately judged them, immediately sent wrath, immediately sent his, his justice toward them, and they had to pay the price of the justice, and they're paying that price to this day. But then something odd happens. God creates a people in his own image. He creates Adam, and he creates a people in his own image, and they sin against God. Adam and Eve rebel against God, and it's almost as if the good angels who didn't rebel against God are like, step back, this is not going to be good. Step back, this is not going to be good. And God does, in fact, judge Adam and Eve. And he actually tells them that they will die. And he, and he curses them with death. But he does two other things. Number one, he makes a promise to them. In Genesis 3.15, it says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's speaking the devil right now, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise her, your head and you shall bruise his heel. God slips in this promise that doesn't make any sense. And this is when the angels start scratching their head. What is, what is this? What is this? And then God does something else. Instead of sending Adam and Eve to hell with the angels that's, that rebelled against him, he does this in Genesis 3.21. Also for Adam and Eve and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Adam and Eve are covered. Adam and Eve continue to live. Adam and Eve are blessed with children. Adam and Eve continue to live upon the earth. God continues to deal with them. And the angels are struggling. They're struggling with what this means. They're struggling with how this... And this is how the manifold wisdom of God begins to unfold. Because the angels, as they're struggling, here's their struggle. Wait a minute. God is just. God is righteous. God is holy. Why is he not destroying them? Why didn't he just end this whole earth thing right away and these Adam people... Why didn't he just get rid of them? And how can he still be just and keep being so nice to them? How can he keep loving them? How can, why has he, where is justice here? Where is the same justice that, that, that came upon the, why, what, there, there's a problem here. How can this grace and this justice, how do they fit together? How does this work? How does holiness and this grace fit together. It was absolutely confusing. And then as God begins to work and move, they're still trying to understand this collision course that must come between grace and holiness and grace and justice and grace and wrath and mercy and wrath. They can't figure this out. And then all of a sudden, God keeps working and moving. His manifold wisdom keeps working and moving. He, he, he makes promises to Abraham. 
He brings the people of Israel out of Egypt and he gives them a whole system of lambs and priests and, and worship and sacrifice and blood. But that seems all stopgap. It seems all stopgap. That doesn't actually fix the problem. It just seems like it's, it, it's stopgap. But there's something going on here. And then he starts speaking through the prophets about a Messiah coming about a, a seed of Abraham, a seed of the woman, a seed of David, a forever king. And yet this forever king is going to suffer and, and this forever king is going to die. And, and, and they, 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 they just can't keep putting the pieces together. And they're looking over the prophet's shoulders and the prophets are scratching their head and they're scratching their head and they can't figure this all out. And then, and then, at the perfect moment of time, the very Son of God, enthroned on high, God the Word, God, who, who, God the Son, God through whom all things were made, God the Son stands up from his throne at the right hand of the throne of his Father. He stands up from his throne and he takes his royal crown as the very Lord of all lords and King of all kings. He takes his royal crown off. He sets his royal scepter aside. He takes his royal robe off. And he walks down from that diaz. And the angels are in stunned silence. And they're watching as the very, their Lord and Master, Creator and King, is walking through legions and legions of angels. He's walking through them. They're separating from him. And he descends to this speck of dust called the earth, to this small little insignificant town called Nazareth, and he enters into the womb of a peasant girl, a peasant girl named Mary. You see, at this point, there's shock amongst the principalities and powers. Shock. God has become a man. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. The Lord Jesus Christ becomes incarnate. And then he's birthed and he becomes a little boy, and then he grows into a little toddler, and then he grows in wisdom and knowledge and stature. He's growing. He's going through normal development and growth. And then, and then he takes on a job, and he works as a general contractor, and he works uh, uh, for, for many years there, many years, up to 15 years perhaps, even more. He works in that. And, 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 and he, was, he lived such an ordinary, common life, except he was sinless, really nice guy. Does really good work, but he's sinless. He's sinless, and there he is. And what happens? Even then, as he begins to preach and as he begins to teach, he begins as comes out as rabbi, and he's speaking and he's teaching, and he begins to identify who he is. And then he's arrested, and he's condemned, and he hangs upon a cross, and he dies. And what happens at that moment? What happens at that moment? At that moment, on the cross, as the very Son of God is dying, justice and grace, justice and mercy are all completely satisfied. One of our hymn writers writes, justice and mercy kiss. 
Justice, another one, justice smiles and asks no more. God in his wisdom has figured out a way by which justice can be fully satisfied and grace, unmerited love, can be fully poured out. And he did it through the life, the holiness, the righteousness of his own son dying as a substitute. God gave his own son. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And the principalities and powers are watching this get played out. And then the Lord Jesus Christ rises from the dead. And he's placed above all heaven, all principalities and powers. This man, this general contractor from Nazareth, this man is raised above as the God-man, the God-man above all principalities and powers. Humanity itself in him is raised above all principalities and powers, all of them. And he then is given the Holy Spirit in which he pours out upon the people. And what that is, is that's grace being poured out upon the people. And the Holy Spirit is poured out. And as the Holy Spirit is poured out, people are brought from spiritual life to spiritual death. He is saving people. He is saving them by grace. He's making them alive. God is adopting these people into his kingdom. God is adopting them into his family. God is working salvation. God's grace is at work through his son. God is reconciling people to himself. God is at work saving, 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 saving. And it's amazing what God is doing. And this is the plan that is being worked out. And this the, the angels, the principalities and powers are looking on. And they're looking on this with awe. And the demons are looking on. And they're frustrated. They're frustrated at what is happening. They're in shock at what is happening. How God's grace is working out. How his justice is being met. How all things are working out and working together. And guess what? It's not just individually. It's not just individually. It's a whole union of people. These people are brought in union with Christ and God is saving these people and it's the church. And that's why if you look at chapter 3 and verse 10, it says this, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. The principalities and powers are looking at this church and they're seeing this people. They are in union with Christ and they're Jew and they're Gentile and they're from every nation and every tribe and every tongue around the world. God is redeeming these people, raising them from the spiritual death, bringing them to his family, adopting them, forgiving them of all of their sins, cleansing all of their sins through the blood of Jesus. And he's making this one new humanity. And this is what we've been seeing in the book of Ephesians. It's one new humanity. It's a temple that God is raising up. It's God's household. It's God's family. It's God's people. And this is who they are. They are the church. They are the church. And all of a sudden, all of this is starting to make sense. Why God created. Why God allowed the creation to fall. Why God allowed people to, to fall into sin. Why God allowed Satan to sin. Why God allowed all of this to happen. Why? Why? God did all of this to show forth the glory of his grace. To show forth the glory and the manifold wisdom of who he is. This is what God has done. See, think about this, dear friends. Think of a genius. Somebody who's really, really talented, really smart. All, that, all of that talent, all that genius is in, is in here and in his hands. But then what if he does something with that genius? What if he's an engineer and he makes a computer? He's an engineer and he makes a spaceship. 
What if he's a, a surgeon and he repairs a baby's heart like happened a little Fritz here in our church? What if he's a composer and he writes a symphony? What, what does that spaceship, what does that healthy baby, what is, what is that, that, that symphony, what does that, that is a display of his genius. What is the church? The church is the forever display of God's grace. The forever display of God's grace. Look at chapter 2 and verse 7. Paul says this, remember that verse? That in the ages to come, in eternity future, in the age after age after age of eternity future, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding, exceeding, abundant, un uncountable riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. There's the church. There we are for all of eternity as the display, the monument, the spaceship, the repaired baby, the symphony, the display of his grace, the display of a God of grace. And that could only be seen in the context of a fall, in the context that these people were once his enemies. These people once couldn't have, would not have anything to do. These people wouldn't even come to him. They were dead in trespasses and sins. These people didn't want to hear about him. They didn't want to draw near to him. They didn't want to worship him. They would rather worship other gods. They would rather worship other gods. They made up idols. They made up gods. Or they worshiped their own lusts or their own money or their own desires. They would worship anything. If they, they were asked, they didn't want to talk about it. But, they, they, but God loved them. God loved them in spite of their sin. God loved them because he's a God of grace. God loved them because he's such a good God. And God found a way by which to save them and redeem them and bring them into his family. And it involved the death of his own son. And that was an unbelievable display of wisdom and grace and love. And what he created was the church. And the church will forever be the display of God's grace. Paul has already said all of this in the book of Ephesians. He's already said it all. He's, look in chapter 1, verse 7. He said this, In him we have redemption through his blood. The blood of the very Son of God we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound. And I, I, I corrected that one. Which he lavished toward us. And here we go. In all wisdom and prudence. God figured out a way in his wisdom to lavish his grace upon his enemies through the blood of his son. And then he talks about how he goes even back further, how he chose us, predestined us before the foundation of the world. And then look at verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us acceptable in the beloved. God has done this amazing, wonderful thing. And if you don't think the church is special to him, Look at verse chapter 1 and look at verse 21. He made Christ far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in that which is to come. And he, God, put all things under his Christ's feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, for the church, which is his body. The church is the body of Christ. 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and riches and God's wisdom and knowledge. So let's apply this very quickly with the few minutes that we have left. Dear friends, you need to understand, we need to understand that the church is central to all that God is doing in the world. In fact, we could put it this way. The sun rises and sets. The seasons come and go. The stars still hang in the air. All because of the church. Nations rise and fall because of the church. For the church. This is all about the church. God is building and making a church. The most important thing upon planet earth is the church. It is Christ's body. It is the assembly of God's people. It is God's family. It is God's temple. It is a living, it is a temple made out of living stones. The most important thing on the earth, the whole mission of the earth, the whole purpose of the earth, the whole reason of the earth is to show forth the glory of God. And he has chosen in his wisdom to do that through the church, his own son's bride, his own son's body. And this is what the book of Ephesians, every single chapter talks about the centrality of the church. The church is more important than any celebrity. The church is more important than any politician. The church is more important than any country, including the United States of America. The church is more important than any cause, than any cause that, that, that human beings are, 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 are spending their time trying to forward in advance. The church is more important than any Republican, and the church is more important than any Democrat. The church is more important than America's culture wars. The church is more important than America itself. The church is more important than anything in the world. Jesus Christ is ruling the entire universe for the sake of the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. And dear friends, we need to understand that this is the glorious plan of God and see how important the church is. And so the church's expansion, the church's purity, the safeguarding of the gospel that the church does, the church's unity, the church's faithfulness, the church's love, the church's holiness, the church's expression of grace, that is the very most important thing in the world. And God's work in the world is us, the church, and that's who we are. And so let me just encourage you, dear ones, praise God and thank God that you're in the church. Thank God that you're a part of this member, this worldwide body of people that is the church. And thank God for the local church where we will experience this, and that's where we experience it. That's where we're a part of. And so, dear friends, if you have anybody in your life, like I have people in my life, if you have anybody in your life who feel like they're Christians, but they don't want to have any connection or any involvement with the local church, please, dear ones, pray for them, first of all. Their faith is dreadfully unbiblical, dreadfully fractured, dreadfully broken. Their faith is broken. Now, some of them may have had difficulties and trials in, in churches. Some local churches may have treated them poorly and shamefully. The Apostle Paul had people treat him for, for, uh, shamefully in the church. And yet, there's no excuse. 
There is no Christianity, there is no genuine Christian experience apart from the church of Jesus Christ, this body, this people. This is why you have this astounding statement in Ephesians chapter 10. And for those people who say, I'm going to be an autonomous Christian separated from the church. I'm going to do my thing alone apart from the church. That person is actually very, very worldly in their thinking. Because this world is all about autonomy. This world is all about my own self-expression. This world is all about my own happiness and me. That's what this world is about. And they don't realize, they don't understand that what God says, no, 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 no. This world is about my son's bride. This world is right now about my son's body. This world is about this living temple. This world is about my family, my household. That's how the church is being described in the book of Ephesians. And we need to understand that, dear ones. We have such a privilege to be a part of Christ's church. We're in. We're in the kingdom. We're in the plan. We're enjoying his grace. And dear ones, let me ask you this. Are there any here who are outside the church? You're outside the people of God. You're outside of grace. You're standing on the outside looking in. Maybe you came here today and you said, man, I'm not a part of these people. These people are different than me. These people think differently than me. These people act differently than me. These people love things I love. I don't really love. These people don't like the things I love. I'm, 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 I'm out of this. I don't fit in this. I'm not a part of this. Dear ones, let me help you to understand that if that is where you're at today, that is an incredibly dangerous place to be. Because joining you in that feeling is Satan, the evil principalities and powers, and the enemies of God who have been banished to hell. You don't want to be outside this body of believers. You don't want to be outside this church. You don't want to be outside the bride of Christ. You don't want to be in the outskirts of what God is doing in this world because God is displaying the glory of his grace. And here's the beauty of it, dear unbeliever friend. God is inviting you to come in. God is opening the door wide open. God is saying, turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. Turn from the things that are pulling you away from me. Turn from the things that you know are wrong. Turn from those sins. Turn your back on them. Walk away from them. End that. And come to me. And through the blood of my son Jesus, I will cleanse you and wash you of all of your sins. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I will give you a new birth and make you a new person inside. I will adopt you into my family and you will be part of mine forever and ever. I will welcome you and bring you into my church. I will make you a part of my family. I will make you a part of this living temple. I will make you a part of what I am doing. You will become a part of the fullness that fills Christ, who, is the, who fills all in all. This is the wonderful privilege when the gospel is preached. This is the wonderful privilege. And let me just urge you, get in before it's too late. Get in before it's too late. God hasn't promised you tomorrow. 
God hasn't promised you another week. God has not promised you another year of life. Get in before it's too late. Before you perish. Get in. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we just ask and pray that you would bless and be with those who have come to a place in their life where they realize they need you and they don't know you. And I pray that you will save them. I pray right now that they will open their heart and they will trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. I pray that they'll turn their life over to you and that you will help them. I thank you, Father, that for every person right now who's taking a sober assessment of their heart and their life, who's turning to you with their whole heart, I thank you that you will never, ever say no. That you will, all who come to you, you will not turn one away. Father, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, those of us who know you, we just thank you so much. We know we're here because of grace. We know we don't deserve it. We know you loved us when we didn't love you. We know we ca you cared for us when we didn't care about you. And we know that in our sin, you should have, you could have sent us to hell forever because you're so holy like you did the angels that fell. But you didn't do that. You instead of sending us to hell, you sent your son to us. And he died a sacrifice for our sins. Thank you. We thank you, we praise you, and we thank you that we have entered into your kingdom. Father, we pause now to pray for Bill and Dee, and we ask that you would please be with them. We pray that you would just bless the doctors. We pray that you would watch over them and you would comfort them and strengthen them. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have this day to sing your praise as we close now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.